Hi, you're listening to the Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, my guest is Clark Moody, Bitcoin entrepreneur and the man behind one of the best Bitcoin dashboards going out there. This podcast is brought to you by Kraken. If you're looking for a place to buy and sell Bitcoin, Kraken is the place for you. Kraken offer a high-quality platform with high trading volume and low fees. They also offer 24-7 support, so it's really easy to sign up or get help if you need it. And there's also Kraken Pro mobile app and Kraken Futures mobile app, delivering all the security and features you love about the Kraken exchange in a beautiful mobile-first design for Bitcoin trading. Kraken have an OTC desk for those people seeking a more private, personalized service. And there is also Kraken Margin up to five times and Kraken Futures up to 50 times. Go and check out Kraken, K-R-A-K-E-N.com or search Kraken Pro or Kraken Futures in your app stores. This episode is also brought to you by Unchained Capital, a Bitcoin financial services company. So remember, Unchained have the Vault product and their loan product both built on the foundation of multi-sig. So if you want to use the Vault, it's a two of three product. It's Ledger or Trezor with cold card coming soon. And you can secure your Bitcoin using that two of three Vault. And you can even check that you have access using Caravan as well. So that's another way to don't trust verify. If you need liquidity and you don't want to sell a Bitcoin, then you can get a loan, put up some Bitcoin and get USD. And it's never rehypothecated. It's dedicated multi-sig addresses and it's stored on-chain. Unchained are producing awesome content and they've got open source tools such as Hermit and Caravan. I think you'll enjoy partnering with them. Go and learn more. Unchained-capital.com Bitcoin is better money and you want to stack it regularly without manual processing, right? If you're in the US, you must look up Swan Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com. You can link any major US bank account via ACH and auto buy weekly or monthly and it's delivered to your wallet or stored with a licensed and regulated custodian. Swan Bitcoin's focus is on education and Bitcoin advocacy. Jan Pritzker, he's the author of Inventing Bitcoin, he's their CTO, and Brady from Citizen Bitcoin is head of education. I'm involved as an advisor with a small equity stake also. So there's givebitcoin.io for your Bitcoin gifting, and go to swanbitcoin.com for your automated Bitcoin stacking. So if you've got a hardware wallet, have you backed up the seed? Look into CypherSafe at cyphersafe.io, producing the CypherWheel product. So if you've invested in this Bitcoin hardware wallet and you've got the 12 or 24 words, are you keeping that BIP39 seed backed up in a way that's fireproof, waterproof, rustproof, petproof, and tamper evident? The cipher wheel comes in a wheel shape. It masks the words of your seed and has a padlock tamper evident seal. It's also made of stainless steel so that it is corrosion resistant and resists oxidization. So make sure that you or your loved ones have access to your bitcoins if an accident occurs. Orders are going out now. Go and order yours at cyphersafe.io. So today with Clark, we talk about his history in Bitcoin, why he started this dashboard, and we talk through a bunch of these different statistics, which I think will be really handy for those of you who are newer to Bitcoin to give you some perspective on those statistics, what you should be looking at, and some different ways that you might think of those, whether they are blockchain stats, node stats, mining, stock to flow, output types, or future directions that Clark could take it. Here's the interview. Clark, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. So Clark, I'm a fan of your work. I know you've been around the Bitcoin game for a while. You've done various startups. You've worked with Dan Held as well. And also you've got this awesome dashboard, which we're going to talk to as well. But just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, what are you working on these days? Yeah, so I started my Bitcoin journey in 2011, built a Mt. Gox live chart and order book and all of that stuff. And at the same time, I was working on a project called RTBTC which 
was a web-based trading platform interface. So you could trade any of the exchanges you wanted with the same UI. So really nice charts, really nice UI. Um, during that time is when I first met up with Dan and we actually collaborated on his zero block mobile app. So he needed a chart. I had charts. So we embedded my charts in his app, you know, simple web view, but it was the fastest way to get charts in there. And it was good that we worked together because uh, we were both acquired by blockchain late 2013, early 2014, kind of that first big 1100 bubble uh, run up. And so we worked together on that, rebranded my product from RTBTC, which is like the worst name ever, to zero block trading. Um, and so that was fun to work, you know, get to know him, work, work with him. And then we got back together in 2017 and uh, co-founded Interchange along with Matt Galligan to build institutional back office tools um, for managing any, any crypto asset, answering the questions, what do I own? Where is it? What's it worth right now? Doing accounting on that. And uh, we, that was acquired by Kraken last year, uh, mid-2019. So we're still still going strong at Kraken. And uh, yeah, so been in the space a while, worked with Dan for a while. Yeah, like I said, I'm a big fan of your dashboard. I use it quite often myself when I want to check out stats on Bitcoin network. And I even use it as a teaching tool when I'm working with a new coiner and they've got different questions like, oh, how many Bitcoins have been issued? I'll go, okay, one sec, let me just pull up the dashboard and then boom, you can show them, okay, this is the money supplied today, some of the different statistics. So why did you start this dashboard? Well, yeah, first of all, it was, you know, I build all my products for me first. Uh, it's the kind of thing that it's like, I've got it sitting up on one of my monitors for two or three months before I even tell anybody about it. Um, but yeah, I just wanted that quick glance, broad overview of the entire Bitcoin ecosystem so that you could just say, I wonder where the hash rate's sitting. I wonder where this is sitting, where the mempool is, whatever. And you, you know, instead of pulling up your bookmarks folder on your browser, you've got just the numbers refined down. Now, during the 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 SegWit activation time, you know, you were going and checking out block version numbers and what's the miner signaling. And we don't have any uh, in-flight softworks right now, but I've, I'll sure have that stuff when the time comes. Uh, but you're looking at block sizes, you're looking at fees, you're looking at everything. And, you know, I'm sure you did, like, found yourself going to 10 different sites and you had them all up. So I wanted to bring those all into one place. I'd also like to give a shout out to Ansel at Bitcoin and Markets podcast. So during 2017, he was like my go-to podcast and he would rattle off these various figures throughout the show and you could tell he was going to different sites. And so I was like, man, it'd be nice if there was that one place uh, where all of these things were. Um, one of the, the most interesting stats that he had, which I don't have on my dashboard, but one of his was the chain value density was this like the block size divided by the market cap or market cap divided by block size. So you get this kind of like dollar per megabyte of block space number, and you could use it to compare chains, you know, Bitcoin cash at the time. Anyway, so that was just one of those really interesting ones. That's kind of, kind of a weird stat that'd be fun to have. Yeah, that's great. And Ansel, Ansel is another OG in the space and he's done a great job with his podcast and the work he shares on Twitter and so on. Uh, in terms of your dashboard, then do you see it as, 
monitoring tool and then also somewhat of an education tool. Would you say that's basically how you see it? Yeah, I'd say monitoring primarily, but I've got those descriptions on each field. Like when you click a field in the dashboard, there's a small description of what it is. You know, that it takes writing like actual sentences, which is a lot harder for me than writing code. So <laughs> some of those could be improved, but yeah, it's so you could you could just pop open. I found myself at meetups, my, our local meetup saying, you know, we're talking about block size, we're talking about something. And I pull out the dashboard two or three times during the conversation to just to say, you know, here it is right now. This is what it is right now, you know. Awesome. So yeah, so let's talk through some of the different statistics. And maybe what we can do today is also not just talk through the statistic, but also what's the deeper meaning of it? And how how are you thinking about it? Because I think that will be useful for listeners, maybe for the beginner and intermediate level listeners, Mm -hmm. uh, for them to get get their own improve their own grasp of what's going on with the blockchain and so on. So look, high level, I guess, when we first look at the dashboard in the top left, you got the price, right? You got sats per dollar, you know, it's... um, you know, and we can see like the block height, right? So Bitcoin has a blockchain and we can see exactly how many blocks there are. It's funny, you've also got here the GBTC premium. And so right now, as we record this, it's sitting around 20%, 20.8%. Uh, what do you make of that GBTC premium? Is it just that people are willing to pay that much more for easy access to synthetic Bitcoin? Yeah, so GBTC is a traditional ticker that you can buy through your brokerage. And it kind of represents that uh, just like you said, that that convenience premium of, I don't know how to custody Bitcoin. I just want some exposure. I can just go into my s- standard brokerage. I've got Apple stock, I've got whatever, and I've got GBTC. So the premium kind of represents that opportunity that that people are willing to pay for that convenience. Yeah. And uh, in terms of the price and then the market cap, obviously, that's not... One funny thing I find is that the longer someone's been around in Bitcoin, they tend to talk about price less often, right? Because they're just more focused on development or the community building or some other aspect of it. But I suppose it it is, in fairness, the bigger Bitcoin's price goes and the bigger the market capitalization goes, the more use value somebody has with Bitcoin because now they can actually transfer more money uh, without necessarily moving uh, the price of Bitcoin up and down with like slippage. Do you have any uh, comments on that kind of idea? Yeah, sure. So liquidity is a measure that I'm not showing here, but uh, liquidity is this interesting word that it really represents how much is available to buy or sell right now. It's time-based. There's not just you can say, oh, that market's liquid. What you're really saying is, that market has buyers and sellers at size all the time. And it might look, you know, the dashboard now has that markets block is pretty small and it's the first thing. I do plan on putting more things up there in in the markets related stuff. There's tons of stuff you could do there. But so it's, you know, you lead with the price because maybe that's the first thing that people are going to kind of glance at on their phone. It's the top thing on the site. You look at it quick. But the market cap does represent that kind of easy to grasp. How big is Bitcoin? How big is it right now? And you know, when it's sitting at a trillion, then Bitcoin's like forty-four thousand dollars or whatever. And so, if it's seven trillion, it's as big as gold. And you could just have that really quick glance at, wow, Bitcoin's pretty big. You know, so for maybe the maybe the person looking at it for the first time, say, oh, this is a hundred sixty billion as we're recording, hundred sixty billion dollar thing. That's not insignificant, right? 
Right, yeah. Um, and so the next one down is the blockchain. And so we've got the block height. We've got the money supply, very important, percentage issued. So I find this now personally when I'm trying to teach a new coiner, it's quite a interesting thing to point out to them that, look, on this dashboard, you can see, again, at the time of recording, percentage issued, 86.9%. 18.25 million of the Bitcoins that will ever be mined is already out there existing today. And that that's perhaps counterintuitive for some. Yeah, fully auditable supply, hugely important. It's it's one of the fundamental value propositions of Bitcoin is that there's the supply exactly fully audited. You can audit it for yourself and you don't have to trust anybody else that says, hey, trust us. We've got 18.249 Bitcoin, million Bitcoin in the bank. No, it's fully audited cryptographically that that's how many Bitcoin there are. And so that's, that is really important to, to know coming into the space that that yeah, it, you have this fully audited guarantee of supply, and uh, nobody can change that without significant, uh, you know, hard fork of the network. And 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 if you're running your own node, you don't have to follow that. You're going to stick to you can stick to the chain that that only has 21 million total. Right, and uh, and you don't even have to rely on the dashboard if you run your own node, right? Because you can do uh, I forgot the exact command. I think it's get tx outset. I think that's a, there's like a command you can run and basically check this is the exact outstanding number right now. So let's talk a little bit about the UTXO set size. So that's about 66 million. Uh, what does that mean? What is the UTXO set? A UTXO is an unspent transaction output, and that represents a portion of Bitcoin that's available to spend. And so the number of those, 66 million, I like to think of it as... You could kind of think of it as a soft upper bound on the total number of people who hold Bitcoin. So that's kind of individual addresses that have a balance, roughly. It's, you know, addresses could be multi-sig, so that's multiple parties controlling the same coins. But roughly, you could think of it as an upper bound on total people self-custodying their, you know, independent Bitcoins. Now, your wallet is made up of UTXOs. So your wallet has multiple UTXOs in it. That's why this number could be seen as an upper bound. Yeah. And uh, it's also, I guess, when we think about Bitcoin into the future and how Bitcoin scales and so on, that's also an important consideration because it's not merely the blockchain size. So today, as we, as we speak, it's about 301 gigabytes, but it's also about each device who wants to run a full node, are they able to contain that UTXO set in their own memory and do all the calculations of incomings and outgoings. And one thing to note, that set, the blockchain gets you there, but that set in essence is Bitcoin. That's the current state of the ledger is that UTXO set. So if there's a way to you know, trustlessly get there, you can actually delete the whole blockchain, keep the headers, delete the whole chain and just have that UTXO set. And that's what pruned, pruned full nodes do. So if you could stand downloading that that chain and verifying it, you can actually throw it away and just keep that UTXO set up to date and you're up to date with Bitcoin. Yeah. And so I guess one way to think through that is right now, if you want to run the full node, that's about 300 gigabytes at the time of recording, obviously that will go up in time. Uh, and people can run pruned nodes at like five gigabytes of storage, let's say. Uh, and now then... 
you would have the complete picture for yourself that you have verified. But then if you're running a prune node and you don't have the full node, the rest of the blockchain, you couldn't forward, you couldn't give that on to other people. So there's kind of an interesting aspect not, there not around. Not the past history. Yeah, that's right. And so another very counterintuitive statistic here for some people, it might be this one here, one year average block time. And so... But, but Clark, I thought Bitcoin blocks were only every 10 minutes. What's going on with that? Well, we have this thing called difficulty adjustment that targets 10 minutes. So if you see this number below 10 minutes, that means that hash power has been coming online continually, making blocks happen faster, and the network is trying to adjust downward. If we had no growth in hash rate, that number would be right around 10 minutes. So you know the way that I the way that I uh, calculate this is I go back, go back one year. What's what was the block one year ago, and just divide through by the number of that total time by the number of blocks to get this long average. But yeah, so it, the hash power since the beginning of Bitcoin has increased eighteen orders of magnitude or something. Some maybe not that much. Six, seven, fifteen. I don't know a huge number of orders of magnitude increase in the power of the network. So if you didn't have the difficulty adjustment, the blocks would just be zipping by once every couple milliseconds. So we spoke about it before, the chain size. So that's about 301 gigabytes. And that's also uh, interesting from a scaling perspective and how, how quickly is that growing every year, right? So again, a couple of years ago, for the, for the listeners who are maybe a little newer to Bitcoin, there was a big debate a couple of years ago around how, what direction should Bitcoin go? And one of the big arguments was, oh, hard drive space is really cheap. But there were other factors there to that little, well, large debate as well. So things like uh, minor centralization, uh, the ability of the network to remain in a decentralized consensus, even with bigger blocks. Uh, so uh, do you have any thoughts to share with the listeners there on the chain size and how quickly that's growing? What are the implications of that? Yeah. So two things, if the chain is large, just in its on-disk size, then it takes a long time to get caught up. But the bigger problem is if the blocks are too big, you can never catch up if you have constrained bandwidth. So bandwidth is probably the limiting factor for uh, many places around the world. If you can't catch up with bandwidth and associated hardware requirements to validate the chain, you know, larger, larger and larger blocks take more resources to validate. If you can't validate each block on average in 10 minutes, or you know, download it, validate it in 10 minutes, you're going to fall behind on average. And you'll never actually catch up if the chain just keeps rolling on ahead. So the on-chain storage size is one thing to keep in mind if you want to run a full archival node. But hard drive space is really cheap, and there are other computer resources that are more limiting than than total hard drive space. Yeah, um, and I suppose there's also it might be interesting as well for some listeners just to understand the pers- some of the different perspectives amongst Bitcoin developers. So famously, Luke Dasher has the point of view of we need to lower the block size down to 300 kilobytes. And on the and then there's probably a bunch of Bitcoin and Lightning developers who think, you know, where we are now is okay. And then there are some who might like who might believe not right now, but maybe 10 years time, 15 years time that there should be a block size 
increase uh, uh, because for whatever reason, they want people to be able to interact in a more trust-minimized way and the current size of the blocks like eventually like if you go out to millions and millions of people then it might not actually be enough for every person to have their own utxo and then that might impact on the ability of people to participate in bitcoin uh did you have any thoughts to share on on that kind of um that range in opinions my my thinking is that kind of to jump to the end bitcoin has one hard fork and that's it uh we have to we have to hard fork the timestamp before it overflows a 32-bit unsigned integer. So that's a for sure hard fork. Other than that, you know, there's the there's a market, right? Prices, prices allocate scarce resources. The block size is what it is. To raise it too far requires a hard fork. We could raise it again with a soft fork. I don't know, you know, like we did with SegWit, uh, effectively allowing more block weight, as it were. Um, but you, you just can't hard fork this sort of system. Someone posted a while back a great comparison to the IPv4, IPv5, IPv6 uh, protocol development wars in the 90s. And go read up on that for kind of an equivalent idea of how hard it is to change a protocol. Now, Bitcoin's a protocol. Uh, Bitcoin's not a technology. I think this is maybe what a lot of investors don't understand is that it's not a technology. You know, it's not a tech company; it's a protocol, and so that you know that should that should inform your thinking about hard forks. You know, everybody has to upgrade for a hard fork. Um, so I think Bitcoin has one. I think it will be the sort of thing where where the the timer starts and it's it, it's like everybody we're upgrading in five years. You know, it's a it's a five or ten year runway, and it's like take the next five years to get your house in order before this thing is upgrading, here we go. Um, it's not It's not going to be a quick thing unless there's some emergency change that has to happen, but hopefully we don't have that. Uh, again, we had the, uh, the database indexing problem in 2013, but hopefully we don't have any other, other sort of problems like that. Um, that's kind of my thinking on, on forks. Yeah. And just for the listeners who aren't familiar, the fork that Clark is referring to there, the one hard fork that we know for sure is coming is known as the Y2038 bug, but it's a bit of a misnomer. It's not actually happening in the year 2038. It's actually happening, I think, in like 80 years or something. So look, we may not be alive for that, but you know, just it needs to get solved by then. So Bitcoin's going to the stars. We'll have to fix this problem before then. So it may not be us, but it may be, uh, you know, children and grandchildren generation who are dealing with that. But that is a hard fork that we know is coming. Okay. And so th there is also this question of the op return data. So today that is 2.3 gigabytes. And again, for the listeners, the op return is like a special kind of unspendable output that allows people to essentially write into the chain a certain small amount of information. Uh, I think there are some other maybe more hipster or ghetto ways to do it, but the main way to do it is op return. So what's uh, what's the deal with this op return stuff? Does that mean every full node has to now maintain op return data for now and forevermore? Op return data is safely discardable by the node since it is in a Bitcoin core node calls it null data. So it's literally just a piece of data and nodes could throw it away. I included it on the dashboard just so that people kind of are aware of the size because some people say that 
the blockchain is not a public storage space. We're not putting images on it, et cetera. So just to know how big it actually is, is good for the discussion, right? So as it stands, every full node is carrying around 2.3 gigabytes of this data. Sure, it could get thrown away in later versions, but that's the way it is now. And some really important, um, really important applications could be anchored into this op return data, like open timestamps and uh, the identity work that Microsoft is doing. You can uh, you can hook billions of records into the chain with just one 32-byte piece of data as a you know the root of a Merkle tree can anchor a huge amount of data into the chain in these other protocols. And on that, it might be at first glance, people would think, oh, hold on, pretty much everything else will get priced out of Bitcoin, right? Like unless you are doing real economic value transactions, you're just going to get priced out. You can't just rely on being able to put this stuff into the chain for free or very cheap. It's going to go up in time. Uh, but I think to the point you were making is that some of the guys at Microsoft, I think his name is Daniel Buckner or Buchner, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, uh, and he's got the decentralized ID ion approach. And as you were saying, you would sort of anchor in with one hash the information relating to, say, billions of information, billions of people or millions of people. And so that is how it might be cost effective. That's right. He says, you know, even if it costs $100 to anchor a decentralized identity system to the blockchain, it would be worth it because now your identity is not tied to a company or a state. It's tied to the blockchain, which is apolitical, anti-political, you know, uh, free free from from interference. Another interesting conception and idea for listeners, uh, maybe this is revision for the advanced listeners, but for the beginners and intermediates, this idea of uh, containerships. So this idea that a Bitcoin transaction is not necessarily always a single payment and that it may eventually over time, it will contain many payments, whether that is a lightning channel open and close transaction, or whether that is a payment between, let's say, two Bitcoin banks, and really inside that is actually contained a lot more transaction data. How are you thinking about that kind of idea? Yeah, I've thought about the custodial Bitcoin bank idea, and you would you would have two banks settle on chain daily, weekly, whatever, but you know they have cryptographically signed messages to one another throughout the week. And then they settle up just like banks used to settle in gold. You know, we were, here's a bunch of your checks back. Give us the gold from your vault. Could be exactly the same thing. And that's worth it to a bank to settle billions and billions of dollars of transactions on chain. Maybe, maybe they're moving a couple million. They're, they're willing to pay a hundred dollar transaction fee for that, a thousand dollar transaction fee for that to have that final settlement guarantee. Yeah. And uh, Dan Held has done some work on this as well. His uh, article um, about Bitcoin security long term relying on more transaction fees than miners. But we'll, we'll get to that. I think we've got a section uh, on mining, so we'll probably leave that for then. Um, but let's talk about the Bitcoin network now. So we've got about 10,000 reachable Bitcoin nodes. And how does this compare with some of the other statistics, such as Luke Dash's statistics? This box is from the BitNodes, BitNodes.io, 21Co, EarnCo, whatever it is now, um, from their scanner of the chain. And it's I think it's just listening nodes. So this is the number of nodes that have an open network port that can accept incoming transactions. Um, Luke 
has a scanner that seems to report over a hundred thousand nodes, and it it may be using a different methodology of finding those. Um, either way, that you know, it's important that this number is large, and it's also I. I don't think this number has changed all that much. I remember it being around this this count back in 2017. You know, everyone's running their UASF nodes and we're counting those user agents and things like that. It seemed, if I recall, it was about 10,000. Like it wasn't five and it wasn't 30, you know. So maybe this number is stable and it represents kind of hardcore Bitcoiners and I don't know. We'll see. It'll be interesting to watch this one going into the future. Like, where are we in a couple of decades, right? Yeah, and it, it also because there's a few points here, um, and I think Bitcoin's community, as it were, for want of a better word, has become more aware around this idea that it's not just the mere number of nodes, right? Like, someone can just go spin up on AWS a whole bunch of cloud nodes, but really, what matters is an economic node. Are you using that node to accept or reject? Uh, an incoming transaction and say, no, that's fake Bitcoin. I'm not accepting that. Or yes, that's real Bitcoin. I've trust, I've valid, I, I have validated that on my own Bitcoin node. I guess that's the um, important way to think for uh, the listeners there. Right. Yeah, we've we've seen that tactic of spinning up a thousand nodes for other other fork projects, and it no everybody sees right through it. Again, I I don't know exactly um, here, but I believe Luke's statistic might have something to do with running one of the seed nodes for new nodes who are spinning up on the network the DNS when they're starting. Yeah, he he might be he might be able to use some of the statistics from that to then figure out a more accurate fi- picture of uh, how many actual nodes are there out there in the world. Because as you said, this is reachable Bitcoin nodes. So for listeners who are unfamiliar, if you just double click Bitcoin core and just run that and you haven't opened a port, your node will not come up in this statistic because you haven't forwarded the port to open that port. So there may be many, many more nodes out there, but they just don't have an open port. And maybe that's a good thing, right? We've got more people who have a copy of the Bitcoin node, a a Bitcoin blockchain uh, and are transacting, uh, but we just don't necessarily know who they are. Yeah. Yeah. Your node is is the beachhead into the ecosystem. And so you can you know, self-validate the chain, um, and using using tools like Samurai Dojo, for instance, you could host your family and friends. They can hook to your dojo, and so your node is powering a local community of people, or your node could be powering a business, and it represents thousands, millions of users. You know, their entry into the network. So, it's not one user per node. Yeah, that's a great point to remember. Uh, and so, Lightning Network. Uh, so similarly, we've got uh, about 6,500 Lightning nodes. So where are you getting that stat from? I'm running an LND node on a server, and I've connected to a few peers, and I'm just processing the um, describe graph RPC call uh, that gives us Tor capacity, Tor channels, total nodes. Um, so that's that's where I'm getting that data. Awesome. And so today we have about 864 Bitcoins that have been funded into Lightning channels. Uh, And I guess there is some amount of debate and sometimes on the new, on the, you know, Bitcoin and, you know, crypto news, quote unquote, uh, they'll say things like, oh, look, the capacity has gone up. Or sometimes people might say, oh, look, there's more locked up in some other, you know, some other cryptocurrency. 
How are you thinking about that? Is that a measure of you know real transactional volume? Is it just an experimental thing? These these are people who want to play around with the Lightning Network, or or here's another take. Maybe it might be actually using less bitcoins to achieve more is more capital efficient. So what what's your thought there? My thought is that I'd like to see this number rising. It's been around this 850, 830 coins for a couple months. So we're not seeing the explosive growth like we saw at the beginning of the Lightning Network. Um, you're right. You can you can anchor 2 billion transactions to the chain with two on-chain transactions. So there could be huge amounts of, of activity happening. We just don't see it. Also, this is public capacity. So there are private channels that my node wouldn't know about. So there is hidden capacity. And as people say, mobile wallets now are defaulting to uh, private channels. So you're not going to necessarily have a correspondence with the more people who, who sign on. So those are some caveats to know about the Lightning Network. And who knows what they do in the future? I mean... There's so many, uh, you had a podcast a little while back talking about Lightning privacy, which was excellent. And there was just all these different ways of shielding the amounts, who's transacting with whom, all these things. So they're continually thinking about those uh, those issues on Lightning. And it's very interesting to see. Right, because there's so many developments still to come, right? So if we get Taproot and Schnorr, and as Rusty Russell mentioned on that episode, there's all these different changes that could come to the protocol. So, for example, we might have point time locking and we might have um, better ways of doing MPP, multi-part payment. So, there are just a couple of ideas there. Uh, and also, there is just that factor of maybe a lot of people are just hodling, right? They're not necessarily caring about trying to spend right now. They're planning to spend in 5, 10, 15 years. Who knows? So, that, that's an important factor as well that maybe we're just early. And fees are fees are pretty low too, so lower valued economic activity can still happen on chain with very low fees if you're willing to wait until night or weekend times. Um, so, if we see continually full blocks, if we see base fee rates rising, then we could see an uptake in Lightning as people move that activity off chain. Right, and I think that's a good parallel to what happened in 2017 because. There was a lot of on-chain volume. Now, it's also fair to say that there may have been actors trying to basically spam the chain, right? Just to make it look like it was overly full and there really weren't that many people. But there has also been, to acknowledge the efforts of people uh, from Bitcoin Optech and so on, working with exchanges saying, hey, let's get you using SegWit. Let's get, let's get you using batching. Let's, let, let's get you guys doing low fee, low-balling the fee, and then RBF, replaced by fee, the fee higher if you can't get it confirmed in a certain period of time. And so it's kind of like this weird sort of tension because in one way, the put it this way, the what drives people to look for those engineering improvements is the chain getting congested. Uh, but then the more engineering talent that gets put into it, then you can start cramming more and more into it and get more for less. Right, right. right. Yeah, Com compact compact representations, you know, shorter addresses, shorter hashes and all these things. You know, there was an article about scaling Bitcoin came out in 2017, I think on the Bitcoin Core blog. And it talked about all the improvements in just the node technology to be able to validate the chain faster, which is makes you able to scale to more consistent throughput 
So running a 0.8 node or a 0.3 node right now probably you know, definitely couldn't have kept up with the chain in 2017 uh, because there's just too much to validate and, and the software itself has gotten so much better. Yeah, I think there was also a very interesting BitMEX research piece where they compared the different versions of Bitcoin Core and they, I think there was one that had like a big drop in uh, time, i.e. there was a big efficiency gain in terms of initial download and sync of the Bitcoin blockchain. So uh, also with the Lightning Network, I know this is one of Matt O'Dell's favorite topics is the talk percentage. Mm -hmm. So currently we're at 40% of Tor capacity. So what does that mean for a listener who doesn't really know what Lightning Network and Tor is? So a Lightning channel has two nodes. If one of the nodes is listening on Tor on at least one of its listening addresses, then I count it Tor, I count that whole channel toward Tor capacity, which means that at least part of a payment could be routed through a Lightning node that's listening on Tor. Tor is an the Onion router, T-O-R, is an, uh, a routing system on the internet to try to hide the, the source IP that's making a request. So if you can get into Tor, your request pops out the other side and hopefully no one can put the two together. So you could route a payment on the Lightning Network and route it in such a way that your internet service provider doesn't know that it was you. So that so there, there are multiple stats you could report here, like number of channels where both sides are in Tor, both sides are only listening, only you know, solely on Tor. That's a lot smaller, but I reported the biggest number and only one of them. So you could have you could have six or seven more six and seven more metrics in this box about about just this topic. Right. But your role as a curator as well, and it's important that you just put kind of the key statistics and not bombard with too many, and then it just becomes, it's it's not useful anymore. Right. So I, I like that. I appreciate that you've done uh, a fair bit of curation. Uh, obviously, the trade-off then is the, the, the user of the dashboard is sort of relying on your curation that you're kind of selecting, okay, these are the important statistics and, right, um, but uh, yeah, that's an important uh, statistic as well uh, in terms of the privacy of Lightning Network and hopefully that advances as we go. So let's talk about transactions. So this is sort of recently, we just passed uh, 500 million transactions. So today we're sitting around 508,000, sorry, million, 787,000 transactions. And there's this statistic there where you've got the, the rate, which is really interesting as well, because we've got 3.8 transactions per second. So the famous seven transactions per second of Bitcoin is not even, we're not even using that. Right. Yeah. So this comes from a Bitcoin core RPC call that you can give it, give it a block height and it'll spit out these, these statistics for you. So I just gave it 30 days and that's, that's that, uh, 3.8 transactions per second if you just average it across all the blocks in the last 30 days. So that what that tells us is that the blocks are not full. Maybe they're a little more than half full on average. Um, and then it, it does report the total all time, which is really nice. Um, it's also a fast RPC call for you developers. Some of the, some of the RPC calls are slow, but this one is fast. <laughs> Very nice. Um, and then you've got here chain security. So we've got the hash rate, 105 exahash, and the chain rewrite days, which is an interesting one. What's that? Chain rewrite days is if you took the total work of the chain, so the total number of hashes in the whole chain, 
and you divide through by that 105 exahash per second, how many seconds and hence days would it take to produce an equivalent amount of work? So you could say that you could rewrite the chain from Genesis till now in only 421 days. What we would like to see is that number increasing one day every day so that uh, it takes longer and longer to rewrite the whole chain because hash power is growing. If hash power shrunk, that number would shrink uh, so that it's it's less time. Now, if someone spun up enough computers for that many days uh, to rewrite the whole chain, and that would essentially just, you know, you could rewrite a lot less of the chain to destroy Bitcoin, but this is just kind of a nice, like it represents the total amount of hashes done in all of Bitcoin's history. Gotcha. Yep. Uh, and and let's go into now. You've got the two some boxes around mining. So mining and mining economics. So I think an interesting one to talk through is the some of the mining economic stuff. So we've got the block subsidy and the block subsidy value. So what are these statistics getting at? Subsidy is that money supply function. So every block right now gets twelve and a half Bitcoin. The block subsidy value is basically the market rate of 12 and a half Bitcoin at the current price as well next box is having. So that, that will soon drop to six and a quarter. Uh, it started at 50, then it went to 25. Now it's 12 and a half. And so that's just every block. A miner is incentivized with 12 and a half brand new Bitcoin for finding the block plus transaction fees. Right, right. And so that's the point around how there's the block reward, which is comprised of both the block subsidy plus the transaction fees. And so another really interesting stat, and this is coming back to what we were mentioning here before, is the amount of fees per block. So so for listeners who are unfamiliar, one of the debates that happens in Bitcoin is, will Bitcoin be secure decades into the future? Because over time, as the halving uh, happens, essentially there will be less and less of a block subsidy value, right? So that's why you got the block subsidy value. And I guess there's a few different things to think about here. So first of all, price increases, right? So theoretically, if the price doubles every four years, well, then that block subsidy value in fiat terms stays the same. Mm -hmm. But obviously, we know that's not going to happen forever, right? Uh, I don't know, maybe it will, who knows, right? But we should not anticipate that it will happen forever. Thousand year bull run. <laughs> <laughs> that's right bitcoin was designed to pump forever pump i don't forever. know if doubling every four years forever is sustainable though um but yeah so a really interesting statistic is this idea of how many how much of each block is made up or how much of the reward is made up by fees and versus how much of that is subsidy and that ties into one of dan held's well-known articles about bitcoin security so how are you thinking about that and kind of where are we today in terms of fees as a percentage of subsidy so the current value is 1.3% average fee versus subsidy. So with a percentage, you could do it multiple ways. This one is, if the fee is equal to the block reward, then this reads 100%. We saw that in 2017. Some blocks had more than 12 and a half Bitcoins of fees. So this number would have been 110% or something. If we maintained a constant fee level in absolute terms and we have a halving, then this number doubles. So we'd be at 2.6% if the block subsidy were halved. Um, eventually, this must go over 100% because the subsidies get vanishingly small. So it's just kind of a just a metric to keep your eyes on, like 
how much is the network transaction activity offsetting the diminishing subsidy? Yeah. And it's also probably a good call out or point to raise here, which is that we don't want in the future. So imagine 20, 30 years into the future, we wouldn't want the we wouldn't want that stat or average fees per block to be really lumpy. Like what we really want is kind of a stable backlog of transactions because if it's really lumpy, what does that imply then in terms of mining? Yeah, variance in your variance in your revenue. You can't you can't operate a a business, you know, you can't make payments on your on your capital investment. Um, someone said elsewhere, uh, reserve demand for block space. I don't know which I don't know which podcast that was on, but reserve demand for block space is an incredible idea, and in that hopefully you always have at any at any fee level you always have transactions that are ready to go for different use cases. Yeah, so kind of like a backlog of transactions, basically. Right, and they may not even be in a mempool. They may just be in independent applications looking for an opportune time, waiting till fees start to drop, and then they push transactions back through at a slightly lower fee rate, but they keep those fee levels relatively relatively constant. Gotcha, yeah. And I guess some other factors there could be things like imagining in the future, let's say you know everyone's using Lightning Network, they might opportunistically wait for a low fee time to open their channels. Right. And that's an example there where maybe if you've already got a bunch of channels open and you just want to open one more, you're not necessarily going to put really high fee on that. You might just put it at low fee and just leave it until it gets confirmed. That kind of idea. The marginal channel opener. <laughs> that's right. The, the marginal channel opener is helping smooth out the fees of Bitcoin. That's so, right. Yeah. And I mean, a similar thing could be said for coin joining as well, right? So people might be waiting for a low fee and then go, okay, now I'm going to try and do my coin join. Right. Because so, it's a transaction you don't have to make. It's a lot bigger, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So these are, I mean, again, we're speculating, right? But hopefully... Uh, in, in 10 or 20 years time, they'll look back on this podcast and be like, yeah, those guys were right. So uh, we'll see. Um, but uh, yeah, so look, we've got the halving coming up and there's a lot of debate around this halving estimate. So what's your current estimate for the halving? May 9th, 2020. This is one of the first numbers I wanted to compute with the dashboard. And the way I'm doing it is I'm taking the last, I'm taking that one year average block time and just projecting it forward. So I'm kind of assuming it's it's a maybe a big assumption but i'm just assuming that hash rate growth will be constant so as it was in the past one year so it will be for the next year when this when the having happens this will be projecting out 4 years in the future so this will be a really noisy prediction i may take that interval farther back maybe you go back to the last the distance from the having to project to the next one um interestingly enough we're within a day of being 10,000 blocks to the having so that's kind of a, you know, the big countdown goes from 10,000 to 99.99 and we keep chugging along. Um, others have put this in late May. I think that's just like the naive 10-minute block forward estimate. So I kind of wanted a little bit more, maybe in, you Accuracy. Know, a little bit more accurate estimate. Who knows? You know, or the last difficulty adjustment was actually down. So we had greater than 10-minute block times. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, and so so yeah, you've got a bunch of different statistics here around uh, the next block as well. So how many transactions are there in there? What's the value of it? And then some fee estimates as well. So this is another one where I think if you're a little newer to Bitcoin, you might not understand that idea of, okay, how high should I set the fee for this transaction? And if I want it to go through in a day, 
I can put it through a bit lower than if I want it in the next block. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that and the fee estimates? Yeah, so the very next block stuff is coming from the get block template RPC call. So it's basically asking Bitcoin Core, construct a block for me that I can mine on. I'm not mining on it, but it constructs this block and I I output, you know, what what it's doing. So right now we're looking at, you know, $25 million of value on a on a 0.1 Bitcoin fee. So a lot of value is moving in the next block and not very many not very much fee is paying for it 0.84% over subsidy so below that i've got a box with these fee estimates immediate one hour one day one week and so immediate is kind of like if you wanted it in the next block or two blocks one hour is six blocks you know um interesting since i've launched this dashboard the day and week numbers haven't climbed above one satoshi per byte so at no time in the last couple months could you not get a transaction in with one Satoshi if you're willing to wait a day. Um, so that's interesting. And you know, most most full nodes purge their mempool after three days, maybe three days or two weeks or something. So the transaction can sit there a long time, just waiting for low fees. Um, so if if you don't have to transact right now, don't pay high fees. It's another trick that maybe will keep us out of trouble uh, when when usage goes up. Okay, and I guess one other thing that's interesting there is some people might, depending on what business they're using or what they're doing, they might have different needs to try and get into the next block or into a reasonable timed block. And so if you're waiting for a confirmation, maybe you're an exchange, you're waiting for a deposit or um, you're an exchange and you want to make the payout to the customer and, you don't, and that customer might be a little bit newer, they necessarily don't understand some of these things, they just want to see the, the money hit their wallet. And they, if it hasn't come in a certain time, they might feel like, oh, hang on, what, you didn't pay me? Like, Where's so, my money? Where's my money? Yeah, exactly. So I think that's, those are some of the different dynamics there. And also, you, it might, you might have this weird dynamic of it kind of gets away from you, right? So you might have put it in at a certain time, but then straight after you put your transaction through, it then kind of climbs a little bit. Have you seen that happen? I, I'm sure you have, right? It's happened to me. I've, I've, I've paid for an invoice. It didn't confirm in time. I had to pay more because the price was moving. So, um, you know, exchanges, if you're listening, Lightning Network, instant instant withdrawals, telling you. Most people, you know, have less than 0.16 coins coming in and out, and they can get their 500 bucks with a Bitcoin out instantaneously. Better UX, fewer support tickets. Let's make it happen. Yep. And uh, it also liquid between exchanges as well is another uh, good one as well. Um, so these are some examples of things where exchanges who are forward thinking can really uh, get ahead of the game and uh, be ready for this, uh, this sort of thing. But in fairness, uh, there are many different competing priorities for the exchange that don't necessarily care about uh, mm-hmm. what a couple of um, en- people who are more focused on the engineering of it uh, are thinking and talking about. So let's now change to economics. So what's the current inflation rate? And you've got here the forward monetary inflation. Tell us a little bit about that. Current inflation is if you go back one year, look at the supply then, and then look at the supply now, how much has the supply increased over that one year? So we're we're sitting at 3.87% monetary inflation, different than price inflation or price, you know, (laughs) <laughs> consumer price index stuff. This is monetary base inflation. 
Um, the forward inflation is the same. I'm taking that uh, one-year average block time again and projecting out one year, dividing by block time to get number of blocks, and then how much new how much new supply came on through the subsidy in that time. And right now it's at 2.21%. So we're, the forward inflation is significantly lower. Some would say almost half the current inflation. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. And uh, this might also be a little bit counterintuitive for some people as well, because every year will go down. It's not just the halving factor. It's just the factor that you're coming off a higher base now every year. So so the actual percentage is actually coming down over time. Right. So that's um, an interesting one for people to keep an eye on there. And then stock to flow. So stock to flow is obviously very hotly debated, uh, obviously plan B and uh, has been on the show and has spoken about that. Uh, so there's a lot of people who are interested in, say, the investment aspect of Bitcoin are really focused on this stock to flow stuff. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you've calculated the ratios and the prices here? Stock to flow simply is one over the inflation rate. So one over 2.21% gives us a stock to flow of 45 going forward. And that's the number of years it would take to replenish the current supply at current inflation values. The plan B model also has a price. And my price, I'm showing a stock to flow predicted price of 76.47, which is currently lower than the market price. And that one is based on some coefficients I found on one of plan B's blog posts. This is on my to-do list to like go back and do the regression myself to produce my own coefficients, but I just found some to get a price. There it is. Take it or leave it, you know. Cool, cool. No, that's that's cool. Let's move on to output types. So this one is interesting as well. So um, I guess I'll just do a quick summary just for the listeners what, what that is. So you've got here pubkey hash, script hash, segwit v0 pubkey hash, and segwit v0 script hash. So uh, if you're just thinking in terms of Bitcoin wallets, maybe just like an easy way to think of it, uh, those one addresses, they're a pubkey hash. Most of the three addresses types are like a script hash and then these other segwit ones the segwit v0 are the bc1 addresses um so yeah i I like how you've got a a split and a breakdown so can you tell us a little bit about the split there yeah so we're seeing that it's 40 percent pubkey hash those are those one addresses kind of like standard wallet the script hash 44 percent and those are probably multi-sig probably exchanges this is this is the reported percentage of output volume. So not number of number of outputs, but output volumes of value. And so script hash, 44% probably exchanges. Then SegWit V0, the BC1 addresses, it sums up to 16, 17%. Um, and so that's that kind of like SegWit, SegWit usage percentage in terms of value throughput. And that's a number that you could chart and see it climb and say, you know, oh, 50% of the transactions in this block were, over, were using SegWit, et cetera. Um, this is on a value basis, but it's good to keep an eye on that. And when Taproot launches, I'll add a, I'll add a Taproot output type here as well. So we can see that. Yeah, that's great. And uh, I, I presume as well, because you can actually do multi-sig on the new, mm-hmm. you know, SegWit V0. It's just that many 
clients, might a lot of software right now does it on the three addresses or on the P2SH or the script hash type, as you say. So it's probably the case that over time, people will shift over to using SegWit multi-sig anyway, and then we'll probably see a lot of that percentage shift into using the newest type as well. And I suppose even with Taproot um, out, outputs, that will take some time as well for adoption and multi-sig uh, using MuSig, M-U-Sig, as well to show up uh that will be uh, a type that shows up into the taproot output once we once we have that mm. well assuming we do get that right <laughs> um yeah uh so let's talk a bit about the future supply so i think this is another one of those really counterintuitive boxes and people might not really appreciate that without seeing this dashboard so can you tell us a little bit about what's going on here you often hear the number 2140 thrown about bitcoin supply increases till 2140 well True, but it's not exactly 2140 and it's and it's almost nothing at the at that time. So it's a geometric series that the slope of the curve drops in half every four years. And so what I've got is is just dates of when we expect 90, 95, 99, 99.9% supply. Uh, and that 99.9 is 2047. So 27 years from now. We're less. We have 0.1% of Bitcoin to get us the next hundred years. So people, you know, it, it's going to happen a lot faster than people uh, think. And you know, the 90 and 95% levels were kind of requests from people on Twitter. Like, I need, I need hodl targets, right? I need some short term. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna not gonna go until it's after 90% or 95. So. Those are, you know, one and five years out, um, give people some short-term stuff. And then I've got this last full Bitcoin. So that's when the supply is 21 million minus one coin, one full coin. And I'm, I'm looking at 2102, so the year 2102, a full 30 years to get that last coin. So if you're thinking, oh, you know, this, you know, we have until 2140 to get all the coins. It's going to take 30 years to get the last one. Um, now, if it's worth a trillion dollars, then that's one thing. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we hope. Uh, that's what we think it will be. Uh, and also, just some interesting, I guess, trivia and so on. There were some examples, and I'm sure you're aware of this, Clark. Uh, but there were some examples in Bitcoin's history where a miner has, for example, screwed up their software and incorrectly done the block reward and then got zero for it. Uh, I think there was one example where an OG Bitcoin user, I won't uh, dox the name just in case, uh, but this user intentionally took one sat less than they were entitled to. And it was kind of like a bit of a joke, but that's an example which permanently reduced the supply. So the actual, like once you count all these kind of examples, it's actually a bit less than 21 million. It's like, I don't know, 150 or 200 or a bit, le bit less than that, uh, 21 million. Well, my my money supply number is actually... It it counts it counts the block subsidies, all the way through, and it removes some people send op returns with a value, and that's provably unspendable coin, and so I remove that from this supply number as well. If you look at other places, you'll see a higher number. So mine's mine's a little bit lower. I should probably put like a coins lost, you know, provably unspendable supply, but I don't have that yet. Right, yeah. And then there's also, I guess, on that point, that's also the point around how there's, whatever, three or four years ago, Chain Analysis came out with some work saying that apparently three to four million Bitcoins have already been lost and so on. So 
who knows? But again, that's that's a bit more conjecture, and we don't exactly know for sure. So, what about the future direction for the dashboard? Have you got any other ideas that you're thinking about working on? Yeah, I want to I want to flesh out the market section a little bit. Most of my other sites have been market data sites, so the futures, you know, forward curve, maybe an options curve, some maybe maybe a picture, maybe a table, um, transaction fee analysis. So I don't have anything on like average transaction fee. Um, and that's a number that people are going to bandy about. And so I've got to report it so they can, first of all, come here and use it and not have to go elsewhere, but then it's just an informative thing. So not only like a percentage in terms of like how much percentage are we paying, but also just dollar terms, like what's the average dollar transaction fee. UTXO set analysis, so like distribution of value. I haven't quite found a way to get get at that UTXO set. It's, it's a couple of gigabytes. You know, I'd like to analyze it. Um, maybe looking at side chains, how much is wrapped up in liquid, how much is wrapped up in wrapped BTC on Ethereum, et cetera. Maybe some of the the, the coin join pools, you know, it'd be cool to analyze the chain looking for Wasabi and Samurai and coin coin market or join market transactions, maybe report on that those volumes. And then uh, traditional market. So I'd like to do correlation with S&P 500, gold, oil, and bonds, let's say, um, just, to, just to see how correlated Bitcoin is. Because part of, part of the value proposition is this is uncorrelated. Well, I don't know. We saw it, we saw it drop with the S&P recently. So maybe it's not as correlated as, not as uncorrelated as people would like. And then I've got kind of like a GWIZ uh, module. I want to do an interplanetary Bitcoin module so that it's latency times to Mars and Jupiter. So, so in the far future, you can check, you know, is it a good is it a good time in the orbit of the planet to send a to send a Bitcoin transaction? But that's... <laughs> that reminds me of uh, Drew Bansell's work from Unchained. I think he did some work about center of hash, mm-hmm. and so I think basically he was. I think the the upshot of it was basically that. We won't be able to use Bitcoin on Mars unless there's some kind of fancy sidechain thing going on. We might actually need a shitcoin. We might actually need a Mars coin, right? But I think that's basically the only permissible shitcoins is if you get if you get to another planet, you get to start your own shitcoin. Yeah, the I wrote a blog post, Bitcoin in the Interplanetary Frontier, um, that goes into that a little bit. You could use Lightning on Mars just fine, right? Because it's local, it's local network basically. The chain doesn't have to know about it. But then all you have to do is wait for four confirmations once your transaction goes to goes to Earth to get to the main chain. Just wait four confirmations ex- extra, and then you're there. So uh, okay. maybe not because that bad. Because you have to, use to still it. monitor for like uh, you know uh, breach transaction, and then you need to broadcast your justice transaction and so on. So maybe you would have to set longer. Um, what's the word? Penalty windows or longer. I think they use CSV and CLTV windows. So maybe if you're on Mars and you've got a lightning node, you're going to have to set longer windows. Yeah. And you could use main chain Bitcoin. It would, you would just be a little bit behind. You couldn't mine, but you could run a full node. Right. Of course, you have to make sure that you have multiple comm channels uh, back to earth so that they can't embargo your comms or anything like that. It gets it gets crazy. It gets crazy. <laughs> yeah, it gets pretty wild when you start thinking about it. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Look, I, I think that's pretty much it. But uh, did you have any uh, closing thoughts for the listeners? Anything they should look out for when they're using the dashboard? 
you can set favorites right now. You can click it and put a couple put a couple stats up at the top, and it'll save that locally so that you can refer to a few things. Um, stay tuned. You know, there's a lot more to come. Everybody's been asking about time series data on this stuff, but I don't know. It's a point in time. It's a it's a point in time, and it's gone forever. Maybe uh, so. We'll see. But yeah, it's 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 really fun. One of the things as a developer that I love about this sort of thing is that you can just launch something new, right? You know, I'm kind of my own boss on on a little side project, and it's it's uh, it's fun that people use it, and and it's just a little. It's like my my free time I spend writing code. So I'm just a huge nerd. <laughs> <laughs> as as uh many of uh myself and my listeners are as well mm-hmm. so uh so look where can we find you online where can they find the dashboard and find you online at clark moody on twitter and then bitcoin.clarkmoody.com slash dashboard fantastic well i've really enjoyed chatting with you clark thank you for joining me today thank you subscribe to the show read the transcript and find the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 155 for this episode thanks for listening see you in the citadels 